The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. Good morning all. Uh, my name is Leo Jordan and I'm a senior environmental studies major here to introduce today's combo speaker Dudley Edmondson. Dudley and I share a conviction that nature has the power to heal the mind and body and that photography and filmmaking can be powerful tools for interacting with wild places. Dudley's work has been featured in over 100 pub uh, publications, numerous galleries across the country, but what separates him from so many other wildlife and landscape photographers is that he recognizes that access to and acceptance in what we consider wild places is racially coded. Dudley was one of the first artists to highlight the involvement of African Americans in the public land system. He built on this by creating a set of outdoor role models in his most famous book, Black and Brown Faces in, uh, in America's Wild Places. Reading through some of Dudley's work, I was personally reminded that the experiences I have in nature, whether they be sort of tranquil or heart pounding, are not to be taken for granted. In many ways, they're a reflection of my privilege. Lack of time, financial resources, and uh, the presence of racially driven social norms around um, wild places are barriers to these perspective shifting moments. This is where Dudley's community-based leadership, uh, especially working with urban youth and urban youth of color, really become important. Um, Dudley works to ensure that what is left of America's wild places is to be shared and not gatekept by the, uh, the group doing like most of the exploitation. It's really uh, inspiring work. So please welcome to Carleton College, Dudley Edmondson. Yep, my mic is on, isn't it? Thank you, hey, give me a hug. That was great, appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so, welcome everybody, or, or is it the other way around, I suppose. I'm the guest here, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad to see everybody come out um, and, and thankful for Carlton to invite me here to, to speak to you today. Um, my presentation, I want to try to keep it short, which I'll have to manage myself for time, because I enjoy interacting with audiences. Um, my thing is, I know what's in my head, but I don't know what's in yours. The only way to figure that out is to do a Q&A, listen to people, get feedback, uh, answer questions. So I'm going to hopefully uh, move through this pretty quick. Uh, but as you can see, uh, just my career uh, working in the natural world uh, is, is the title of my presentation. And I just wanted to start with um, sort of, of what I feel like I've gained from having that deep connection with nature and, and being outdoors. Uh, and those things are that, you know, nature has helped me, uh, you know, with build better problem solving skills. Uh, nature has really built my self-confidence and self-reliance. Um, nature exposure has heavily encouraged independent thinking for me, uh, which goes back to the problem-solving piece. Um, it's also given me the ability to step back 
and analyze human constructs in order to understand uh, you know, how they function and how they affect my life. Um, and then, whoops, we got two of them there, but nature has also taught me to slow down and take a much closer look at everything, even things I thought I knew. And I think that's part of what uh, I think humans, as humans, we, we, we're popping around, moving things, moving around at, at our pace, but nature moves at a very different pace. And the only way you're going to figure that out and understand it is to slow down and sort of lose yourself in that space and look at things super close. Um, and then the last one there is, uh, you know, nature's given the ability uh, to embrace the idea of feeling small uh, by understanding that I'm part of something way greater than human beings. Uh, and that really has helped me to understand how I fit into the natural world. So just want to go through what my career has, has been like here in the first part of my presentation. Kind of started in 1990. Originally, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Lived there for uh, several decades before I moved to northern Minnesota. I live in Duluth now. But uh, once I moved to Duluth, I began my career. That was the whole reason moving there, actually, was to become a professional nature photographer. And so um, done, done lots of projects uh, and lots of work around the country, working on field guides and things like that. So uh, that was really my my first real nature job was uh, to uh, sort of photograph and get sort of ID portraits of birds uh, for field guides, encyclopedias, and, and things like that. So that's what I spent most of my career doing, photographing you know, some of these species here, mostly birds at that time uh, you know, for, for field guides. And so uh, also some of those images end up in in encyclopedias uh, and field guides in, in the UK uh, and for, for birds of, of the world, birds of Australia, things like that. So that was re really my career. I traveled all over the country. Uh, you know, I might get up in Duluth, drive to Minneapolis, uh, pick up my, my, my partner, uh, photography partner, and we would drive to Los Angeles, you know, and, and, and maybe stop in the Grand Canyon, photograph California condors, and then continue west uh, and end up maybe a day and a half later on beaches in California photographing shorebirds. And that was kind of my life for about seven or eight years, which was, was a lot of fun, it was weird, <laughs> because it's like, are you sure we're, we're getting paid to do this? This is, you know, it just, it just seemed like a, a weird kind of life to, to just be able to just kind of move in with, in many ways, with nature. As nature moved and, you know, we would move with the seasons and with migrations of, of birds and all kinds of stuff. So that was uh, in the mid to late 90s. That was, that was my life, uh, which I'm very, very thankful for. Um, so I just want to just do a real quick uh, sort of condensing that multi-decade uh, career of, of nature uh, photography into just a few minutes here that I wanna, wanna share with you. So we'll, we'll watch that real quick.
So that's just a, a small collection of, you know, some of the images that I've taken over the years. Um, should back up a little bit uh, about my partner was a guy named Stan Tequila. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the little Birds of Minnesota field guide, uh, but Stan and I, um, that he lives here in the Twin Cities, and he and I were the, well, at that time he wasn't a photographer, and so he hired me to photograph his books. And he would write the books, I'd photograph the books, and we just, we went all over uh, doing field guides for every state uh, as we traveled around the country. So I also do filmmaking, uh, worked quite a bit for, uh, I've always been an independent contractor as a, as a filmmaker, so I've uh, done projects for uh, National Park Service, Nature Conservancy, uh, uh, the, uh, some indigenous tribes actually working on a project later this month for, for Red Cliff, uh, and some college and university projects as well. And then I've also done some independent films. Last year, uh, shot a film in the Arctic Circle called Black Waters, which we're touring that film around the country, different cities, a uh, story of uh, five African-American fly fishermen trying to understand their, how they fit into both the natural world and uh, the urban spaces and things like that. Um, and then a, a film called Cherry Man that, uh, been in a number of film festivals here in, uh, in Minnesota. And so uh, it kind of a hodgepodge of, of stuff. So I just wanted to give you some, some scope of things that I've worked on. Um, and then in 2002, I kind of switched gears and really started to try to write the books that my photos would end up in. And so um, Black and Brown Faces America Throughout Places, which was mentioned earlier, was my uh, my first book uh, also had a children's field guide uh, in the back cover of that book. And then in 2013, I, I wrote a wildflower book of flowers of the eastern United States, uh, some of the common stuff. And then I'm currently working on a, a, a new book project called The People the Planet Needs Now, which is a, a collection of stories from BIPOC, uh, scientists, environmental and social justice activists around the world. Um, and so we are uh, working with a publisher and we're trying to get that book out by next January. But it's got some really amazing stories of people talking about the work they do uh, and uh, some of the challenges they've faced in, in that process. Uh, people from Venezuela, Sri Lanka, uh, the Philippines, and then of course here in the United States. Um, and so the, the Black and Brown Faces in America's Wild Places book, uh, again, was my effort to try to create a set of outdoor role models for, for, for black Americans here uh, in the United States. Uh, because what I realize is that it's, it's, sometimes it's a bit challenging if you don't see people who look like you doing something, you might not you'd be able to make that little extra leap across to realize that that is also within your wheelhouse. And I think that as, as white people in America, you have role models everywhere you look. Everybody's a role model for you because you're the mayor, you're the president, you're the governor, you're my doctor, you're my mailman, you're my boss, you know. So it's not hard to find a role model for white people. But for people of color, it's a, it's a little more challenging. And so uh, we need to see people who look like us as scientists, uh, as outdoor enthusiasts, as uh, 
corporate CEOs and things like that, and, and you know, and people of color in general, you know, we all need uh, to be able to see that in order to to be able to do those kinds of things. But you know, the, the, that book was a really was a four-year process uh, of traveling around the country and talking to folks, um, and you know, it was a four-year journey full of questions. Uh, I spoke with Black Americans around the country from a variety of backgrounds and ages about about their love of nature. Uh, and we talked about, you know, any family traditions in the outdoors, as I believe white Americans tend to pass those traditions down. Uh, and then that sense of ownership and appreciation for nature over multiple generations. Uh, but we also discussed the possible barriers to participation and some agreed, you know, certain historical events and social problems that have kept black Americans from in, enjoying the outdoors. And, and some of those barriers are, you know, created and caused by our country's history of slavery, racial violence, and, and systemic racism. Um, and so part of uh, another presentation I give, I talk about uh, decoding the disconnect and trying to understand how people of African ancestry have been separated from nature in this country uh, over many, many generations. And so part of that is understanding how it began um, and, and it goes, goes quite a ways back. Uh, and so historically, you know, the outdoors for black Americans was a really stressful uh, space with, uh, you know, hard work under horrible conditions, uh, but it was also an unsafe place where violence could occur at the hands of hostile racist whites. Uh, so, you know, I have images there of sharecropping and also unfortunately a lynching uh, of a black man somewhere in the deep south. Uh, but, you know, those kinds of things do certainly affect the way you perceive nature in the out of doors. Uh, so unfortunately, much of black Americans outdoor experiences and activities based on necessity or, you know, activities based on necessity, not really leisure and recreation. And um, I think that the slavery and sharecropping uh, lifestyle really left us with few positive experiences in the out of doors. So that's for me, I'm just trying to put the pieces together and these are things that I feel like that, that could be a marker, that could be a marker, that could be a marker. So that's marker one. The next marker for me is those great migrations out of the Deep South. When black Americans started moving north, looking for life with dignity in those, those big urban cities like Chicago and New York, et cetera. Uh, so you know, many of those stories of struggle and violence in the South were uh, sort of carried forward and carried north as words of warning for that new generation growing up in those, those new areas. And you combine those negative experiences with these generations now growing up in urban spaces sort of apart from, from green spaces. And so you're compounding that disconnect because now you've got people growing up in concrete jungle. Uh, and so that's, that's another layer. And then, of course, we have our, our segregation laws uh, to, um, you know, at one time we had city, state, and federal uh, laws that really controlled access to our public spaces. And in many cases, uh, you know, taxpaying black Americans were not allowed in public spaces. You know, in city parks in the Deep South, black people weren't even allowed in those parks. You'd get a ticket or you'd get arrested for being in a city park. Uh, and so, um, you know, you combine all those things with, you know, even the beaches and things like that as you see some of these images and you get some sense of why black Americans 
until recently really still haven't felt welcome or safe in outdoor spaces. And so, and then thinking about the Civil Rights Movement of 19, uh, or Civil Rights Act of 1964 really gave black Americans for the first time, you know, full access to, to, to public spaces. So, I mean, I even think about that in my lifetime. I was two years old when, when the Civil Rights Act was passed. And so, you know, within my lifetime, that, that has taken place. Um, so it's, you know, you have to put all these things into perspective and, and layer them on top of one another, and then you start to see, well, okay, it makes sense. This, this is why this is and that is and things like that. So that's, that's me trying to put those pieces, pieces together. Um, but I feel like, you know, things have certainly changed in the amount of time certainly that I've been looking at some of these uh, issues. And so I you know, talk about moving forward, looking uh, towards a browner, more inclusive conservation and recreation future and the ability to sort of rethink our relationship with nature and the outdoors. Um, and so, you know, recently the increased use of outdoor spaces among black, indigenous, and people of color, you know, creates opportunities to reevaluate and change our relationship with nature uh, pretty much everywhere, but particularly in our urban green spaces, I think. Uh, say people of color around the globe have long had the ability to see their connection to nature outside of the ideas of extraction, control, and commodification. Just about everywhere you find brown people on this globe, they understand that nature and humans are one. And they behave accordingly and they understand their, their existence is dependent upon having a healthy ecosystem. So they use the resources in a very sort of wise and conservative way. Um, and then so I believe that BIPOC perspectives are really critical to the future of all conservation efforts. Uh, I believe that white-led conservation organizations continue to see spaces devoid of people as having greater ecological value than urban green spaces. But I personally don't think, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of difference. So I put that little line in there. I don't think a, a tree in Yellowstone sequesters any less carbon than a tree in Compton, California. I mean, they, they all do the same thing. So why don't we treat them uh, accordingly? And I also don't believe that um, a green space in an urban space surrounded by the concrete jungle is any less uh, valuable or endangered than a, a plant community on some mountaintop uh, you know, environment where nobody has access to it. They're both important, but somehow we put val more value on spaces where there are no humans, more ecological value. And I think that's really stupid, personally. Um, I think that all green space has value and it should all be treated accordingly. We should put as much money into protecting a forest in an urban green space as we would an, a forest in some you know, remote part of, of the country. So um, the more urban green space we lose, the more we disconnect people from nature and make it harder for them to understand the impacts their actions have on the environment. So if you don't have any nature around you, you really have a difficult time understanding how 
you know, pouring motor oil down the drain or, you know, using plastic straws or whatever is going to have an effect on nature. You have to be in community with the natural world at every possible moment to be able to understand how the things you do impact nature. At least this is just me talking <laughs> about what I think is necessary. And, and I think we should make every effort to reconnect people to nature no matter where they are. Um, but the, you know, the reality is people protect the things they love and understand and, and that's part of the reason why environmental education is, is so important. Um, so, um, and so now, again, part of that rethinking our relationship with nature, taking into consideration the browning of America, which has been happening for over a decade now, but uh, you know, it's defined really as this ongoing uh, population demographic shift that will result in, in white Americans becoming a minority in the next 20 to 25 years. Uh, even currently, as of 2020, white Americans under the age of 18 are a minority in the United States. Uh, and then recent Brookings Institute studies uh, suggest that uh, really youth of color are going to make up the bulk of all this nation's population growth over the next 42 years. Brown children will make up the population growth for this country and so we need to understand that and how are we going to turn these young people into conservationists? Uh, how are we going to educate them and make sure that they uh, you know have access to green space and understand that we need to continue to protect the environment because they're, you know, they're going to be taxpayers, they're going to be voters, they're going to be elected officials so it's important that we get started working on that and so you know I showed the shift really happened in 2013 that's when more brown babies were born in this country than white babies and that is is continuing to to be the case it's not some kind of alarmist call people should run in the street to jump off of buildings uh you know if you're that kind of person I'm I'm sorry to inform you that that, that this is the, the the reality but I think most of us will see this as an opportunity to to just you know do something different and something better for humanity and something better for the environment as we, uh, you know, move forward. So, um, so uh, there's a little collection of, of organizations I know around the country that are doing amazing things uh, to engage people of color in the outdoors. And so I, I feel like you're looking at really the, the, the folks there who are going to you know, really move people of color to, uh, you know, get into the outdoors safely, uh, as well as uh, to protect the environment. Um, and this list is growing probably every year. Uh, but these are just ones that I've worked with or, or know. So we're going to um, now just uh, watch a sort of a, a teaser of uh, black and brown outdoor adventurers. These are some of the folks that I've had the privilege of sharing time with, spending time with, uh, doing amazing adventures with. Uh, and um, I just feel like these folks are part of the future of both uh, conservation and outdoor recreation. And so uh, just sharing some of them with you and some of the adventures that we've been on. So, uh, and then after this, We'll do, we'll do questions. I hope everybody has 
is loaded with some, some cool questions. So we'll run through this here. My name is Jack Brown, um, president and founder of Love Skiing and uh, Solar Reef. Born and raised in Coral, Texas, and I'm from Austin, Texas. Dudley that was amazing and uh, Dudley specifically said that he was going to keep his presentation a little bit shorter because he loves the Q&A so let's not disappoint but we do have uh, just a couple announcements first got the hands already going up uh, next week we will enjoy Jen Hammond Carleton class of 93 Jen Hammond also a Harvard University and Moscow Art Theater MFA graduate she has performed nationally and internationally and is the author of the book returning the bones which incidentally will be on sale before convo next week uh, after Convo, we have Convo Luncheon, of course, and unlike previous, we're going to be in Great Hall. So if you've signed up, we're going to be in Great Hall. If you have not signed up, we have space. So please see me afterwards. We'd love to have you. We do have a few more seats at the table. There will be chicken parm, or at least so I've been told. Um, and just please remember that uh, Convo Luncheon isn't just for Carleton faculty, staff, and students. It can be for community members, too. So please reach out if you would like to attend today next week, whatever. Um, 
I think that's it. I did mention Great Hall, right? Not AGH. Let's get to Q&A. And I know I saw one hand. There we go. Let's kick it off. Hi, wonderful talk. How did your interest first get sparked in the outdoors, nature, birding, wildlife? You know, um, yeah, it was two, twofold. Um, unfortunate circumstances uh, with <clears throat> the family home. Uh, my parents struggled with alcoholism, I think somewhat related to racial tensions in the 60s and 70s and things. And, um, and so that made the household kind of traumatic. And I found that when I was in the nature and the out of doors, uh, that my mental being was much better. Uh, in fact, I felt like at times almost like I had amnesia. I, I had forgotten all about the trauma. We would go on family picnics uh, and be catching channel catfish and eating, you know, burgers on the grill and having a good time as a family in the out of doors. And sort of temporarily, it felt like everything was normal until you got back home. And so uh, I just found that when I was in those, those outdoor spaces that my, my mental state was great and I decided that for the rest of my life I was gonna maintain a connection to nature uh, in some manner. Uh, and for me it just became nature photography. But the other part of it was I had a, a high school art teacher who was a, a crazy bird watcher and he got me into birding in, in the uh, 1979, 1980, and uh, so that also opened a, a new portal for nature for me to get out and do stuff. And so I would say those are probably two of the, the biggest factors for that happening. I know there's, there's a question way in the back. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for your talk. Sure. Um, as sort of a white environmentalist myself, how do you see the modern environmental movement better incorporating the views of black and indigenous people uh, that are so desperately needed in the movement without co-opting um, those views or, uh, yeah, co-opting or taking those views uh, without due credit or, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of it's area specific, but I think in general, I feel like, uh, you know, there's a lot of place-based knowledge from indigenous people, as well as uh, Af people of African ancestry who have, you know, spent time on the land and understanding spaces and things. And that, that knowledge oftentimes is pushed aside because that person doesn't have a a white lab coat and a pocket protector and some glasses, uh, and they're not have a degree as a scientist. And so I think that you need to make space for place-based or tacit knowledge from people and uh, sort of, you know, make room at the table really and, and be genuine about uh, wanting to make change and, and, and being inclusive and not not wanting to be the lead and control of, of everything. I think that oftentimes is 
uh, sometimes getting getting white folks to relinquish leadership is uh, and control it can be can be difficult. Uh, and so you know it's just you have to uh, just kind of figure it out uh, one area at a time. But I mean I'm there's a lot of things I see that are going on I think are, are good. Land back movements are great. Uh, giving up I think we recently gave up some some parkland. Uh, here in Minnesota, back to indigenous people. Uh, so I mean, those, those kinds of things are also helpful. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of ways to do it, but I think sometimes it might just be, well, what group, what organization, but uh, it, in, anything to move in that direction is great, I think, so. That answer wasn't too long, but. <laughs> I'm gonna stand up because I'm short. Hi, hey I'm there. Dia, um, beautiful pictures. So I actually have, two questions in a comment statement or just thought. Mm -hmm. um, the first question is, can you, do you remember your first camera that you got? Um, the second question is, what, um, your favorite place to like find birds and take pictures? And then the comment or whatever thought process is um, like photography is expensive. So when you're talking about like black and brown and I'm just thinking like, it's, it's expensive. Uh, and like how the access to it for uh, black people or black youth, even sure. in like, sorry, I don't have on my glasses. That's why I'm yeah. looking like this. No, like, no, I, but I, um, I was just wondering what was your thoughts like as in drawing that community in when mm -hmm. like it's a really expensive um, hobby. Yeah. yeah, I mean, to answer the first question, Minolta XG7, I believe was my first camera way back when, uh, I don't even know how I came up with the money to, to get it, but uh, it was a film camera way back in the, probably would have been the 80s. Um, favorite place, probably uh, Utah, Arches National Park, uh, Zion, those are some of my favorite places to, to go and take pictures and hang out and find solitude. Uh, and then on the camera question, I think it's this. Smartphone. Most people have them, I'm assuming, and that's the best place, I think, to start. Back when I started, no, yeah, nobody had them. But, I, you know, when I'm working with youth groups, that's, I say, you know, you, let's let everybody whip out their phone and Let's take some pictures of stuff. I mean, you don't need, uh, all you need is something that, that can capture the moment and it doesn't have to be a three or $4,000 camera. I mean, I think of, to me, cameras are time machines. I, I've, I've always viewed cameras as time machines because they can stop time, slow down time, speed up time, freeze time. They can show you things you didn't see. I could take a picture of this room right now and then review that photo and see something happening in this room that I didn't see in real time. And to me, that is the magic of a camera, is it shows you things that you don't know are happening. Uh, but again, like I said, it speeds up time, slows down time. Um, and so a lot of times when I'm talking to young people, I, I talk about cameras as being magical time machines because to me, I think that just makes them cooler. So. <laughs> Question. 
Um, thank you so much for being here today. Sure. I was wondering if you could speak a little to your career as an independent filmmaker and what the process of finding and creating projects looks like for that. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, I have had a, most of my career has been, I would say, probably good fortune in that I've, most of the film projects I've worked on are paid things. Uh, working for clients. And the two films I talked about, The Cherry Man and Black Waters, are really the only independent projects I've ever done. So maybe I'm not the best person <laughs> to answer that question, but I mean, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a process, and I mean, I feel like most of what I think is necessary is to find a subject uh, that you're passionate about and just figure out how to make it and don't worry about you know Sponsorship or funders, but find other creatives that are as passionate about that project as you are and you work collectively together and produce something and then you know enter it into film festivals or whatever and then you might end up in a situation where you're getting uh, you know, financial resources or sponsorship or whatever from, from folks. But, you know, that, that process I know is, is, is a challenging long road and I know lots of people who are, are trying, you know, to do those kinds of things and they're making films and entering in film festivals. But I don't know. I feel like you should make your projects first for you and your, your passion and the emotions that you put into it, if they come across on screen, other people notice, then, um, you know, that's just one thing that will, I think, will allow you to get more notice from, from you know, in anyone else that wants to uh, fund a project. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenging world. And, and I would say just, just make the projects you want to make and forget about the rest of it. And if the rest of it happens, it happens. And work, and like I said earlier, working with people who are as passionate about whatever that thing is as you are. Hopefully that's, that's something that would work for you, but yeah. More questions. Hi. Um, Hi. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure. Um, I was just wondering, what do you think like the next steps are for like our society or as individuals to encourage BIPOC people, specifically in urban areas, to like embrace nature more? Because it kind of seems like this is a like kind of one of the things part of like traumatic or post-traumatic slave um, syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of that. And like, so it's a kind of like a subconscious ingrained thing. So like, how can we like move forward from that and like encourage BIPOC to be a part of nature spaces? Yeah, you know, again, I go back to that, that process of you know, it can be very specific to, to areas of the country and to communities, but I mean, I certainly believe that uh, having more people who look like us uh, promoting these uh, spaces, I think is super important. Uh, and so that urban folks and, and people of color start to see that, you know, this is not just for white people, people of color, can you know be stewards of the land? They can also be uh, 
you know, folks that are taking care of little areas in their community and hopefully doing, doing some environmental education. I mean, I uh, am, have been approached this year by a, a, a friend who teaches master naturalist classes and she wants me to help her teach more, create more BIPOC master naturalists here in, in, in Minnesota, which is a project I definitely want to do if I can just find time in my schedule to, to get it done. But I think, you know, doing environmental education in, in urban communities and educating people about the green spaces that are adjacent to their homes. I mean, my mindset is nature is literally everywhere and we should never think about it being, us being separate from it. And we should never, I mean, there's probably more microbes in this rug, in this room, than there are people in the United States of America. That's nature, right? Uh, and so we have to be thinking on those levels and just educating people that nature is everywhere and that we should appreciate it and, uh, and, and educate people about it and help, more importantly, help people understand that a healthy ecosystem creates a you know, healthy, healthy humanity. And if, uh, if nature goes, goes bad, it's not like humans can just walk away and say, whoa, that was bad for, for the whales and the elephants and polar bears. You know, that stuff affects us. It affects everything. And we have to stop thinking that we're separate from nature. It is suicide, in my personal opinion. So uh, I don't know if that was an answer, but yeah. Sure. Hi. Um, kind of going off of that, I was wondering how much you think the urban interest and immersion in nature is the responsibility of public schools? Well, you know, I think it, environmental education should be mandatory in, 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 you know, in schools. And I mean, we should be teaching kids about the environment and nature from preschool to college. You should have to take, in fact, I was saying, Nancy and I were talking earlier, I was saying if you, there should be a basic test for all people. If you cannot pass this test, I'm sorry, we can't let you outside. You're dangerous to the environment. You have to stay indoors. You don't know enough to be outside. I'm sorry. And if you can't pass that test, you can't go outside. So we should be teaching environmental education at every level, at every level. By the time you graduate from college, you should damn near be a master naturalist just because you've had repeated environmental education stuff. And I was saying, again, Nancy and I were having this conversation, Nancy Breaker, we were having this conversation as we were walking today, that if like 70% of humans had this immense amount of environmental education and knowledge, I don't think we'd be anywhere close to the, the, the crap that we're dealing with, with climate change and the environment and all of that stuff. I think that I personally believe there's some part of corporate America that intentionally wants to keep people ignorant about nature so that they can continue to do the things that they do. Because if you don't know then you're not gonna protest and raise hell. And so I think there's a certain part of that that's, uh, so I, I just think environmental education is crucial for every human being on the planet.
Yes. Hi. Um, I just want to say I really appreciate like you taking the time to be here as well. And I'm curious about what type of um, like BIPOC-focused environmental awareness and exposure like initiatives there are here in Minnesota, like in Midsum cities. Like as a college student, BIPOC student myself, like sure. what type of things would you recommend, like um, or groups to look look towards? Yeah. Well, there's there's the Urban Birding Collective in the Twin Cities, uh, which is a, a BIPOC um, queer community um, uh, group of birders that are going out and doing things and making people of color and queer people feel safe in outdoor spaces because they're doing things collectively as a group and they're learning environmental education as a group. That, that's one group. Um, hopefully there is still um, outdoor afro, <coughs> pardon me, that is here in the, uh, again, in the Twin Cities, outdoor afro. And then there's a, uh, I wanna say there's a, a BIPOC outdoors group in the Twin Cities that I think is run by the Minneapolis Parks, I want to say. The black woman with, with Parks. Uh, but I, those are three that I can think of. Urban Birding Collective, Outdoor Afro, probably be the easiest to find. And then I think the other one is like BIPOC Outdoors Twin Cities or something like that. So those, are, those would be my suggestions. Sure. Hi, um, so I'm in an international relations class and we've been talking about climate change as a global problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on the value of having non-Western, non-European cultures as part of the climate change discussion um, and how we can do better to um, better value those cultures when we talk about climate change solutions. Yeah, I mean, I guess my immediate answer would be they should be leading. The, the discussions and, and people should be learning from them. So uh, that would be my, so that, that is my answer. I think that we need to switch and get away from the, the um, you know, Western knowledge of the environment and, and because everybody kind of knows that stuff and let's, let's flip flop that and let's learn the tacit place-based knowledge of, of indigenous people and how they, uh, you know, responded to some of these things. Um, so I guess that's my answer. Flop it. Yeah. Um, thank you. Mm -hmm. So as a naturalist who's been all over the country, where do you recommend someone starts in terms of learning, like, plant names and all the all the aspects of the natural world well my my answer would be in your in your yard <laughs> um, learning the difference between invasives and, and native species um, I mean as I keep saying nature is everywhere and whether it's a front lawn or you know a managed uh, green space by you know some city uh, entity or whatever, uh, but I think that I think it's important for people to learn about nature where they live in order to be able to appreciate it everywhere else. Uh, at least I think that's the best way to learn to learn that way. Um, and so yeah, I guess my answer is would be your yard or the closest green space to where you live. 
uh, and then using you know Merlin ID is a good bird app uh, Minnesota has an app uh, I can't remember the name of it but you can get it on your phone the Minnesota wildflowers anybody is that what it is Minnesota wildflowers uh, is, is a an app that you can get for for your phone but there's also a website uh, and, and those would be two, two places to, to start to learn about species. Uh, but I mean, if you really get into it, uh, at least I found that it's just very addictive. I'm one of those people, <coughs> excuse me, who, who gets easily gets bored. I like knowledge. I want to shoot me something I don't know, pop it into my brain like, like battery cables, you know, onto a dead battery or something and charge, charge my brain up. So it's like, uh, I want to learn all the time, and I, I realized that I could learn about nature from, from birth to death and still never learn everything, and that makes me hungry. I want to know more, more, feed me more, because <laughs> there's so much to learn and different ways to go once you start for me, birds was my entry, but then I started learning about plants and flowers and pollinators, and yeah, it's just a never-ending thing. So, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for coming here. Um, I get from a lot of friends like, well, I really care about environmental movements, and I take in classes and stuff, but I'm not an outdoorsy person, and so they don't want to go outside on a hike or something. Um, how would you recommend helping friends form a more personal connection with the outdoors? Trick them. <laughs> it's always been my, my answer to that. I've had that question before. And what do they like to do? They like to play, uh, what's it called, with the frisbee? Frisbee golf, golf frisbee, frisbee golf, or whatever. Uh, do they like... You know, I don't know, Pokemon probably doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, games on your phone where you're finding things. Uh, anything <coughs> that they like to do outside, maybe even just, you know, walk into a place to have a sandwich or a coffee or something. I mean, if you're in the outdoors long enough, there's, you know, you can maybe go to that place through a green space, maybe take them through a city park and maybe notice a couple of things and, and then, you know, eventually get them to that space. But yeah, trickery is the, is the way to do it, I think. Hi <laughs> again. Yeah. Have you considered putting together a nature and wilderness uh, lecture talk uh, aimed specifically at... Uh, uh, children that you could take to elementary and middle schools and do presentations. And also, have you considered maybe instituting an outdoor wilderness camp for uh, BIPOC children? Uh, you know, I do talk to youth around the country regularly. I've got, I'm going to Raleigh, North Carolina this year to talk to kids. Uh, I have some other youth uh, elementary school oriented. So I do have some programs that are designed for, for young people. And, and I do those some of those programs. A lot of, you know, I do less talking and show more videos of chipmunks eating, you know, 
cherries or whatever, you know, just showing them pictures of nature and, and, and things like that to really, you know, engage them. But yeah, trying to do that. And then, you know, going on, on hikes with kids, um, you know, and, and those kinds of things and teaching them ab about uh, nature as we're moving along, maybe a bird or a plant. And so that's kind of been my, my way of in, engaging uh, younger, younger audiences, but I thoroughly enjoy working with kids. They're not so critical. Uh, <laughs> and they're, they're, I, I really like middle school kids. They're probably my favorites. Uh, and so, yeah, I do, I do enjoy doing programs with kids and, and do have a, a couple of presentations that I, that I do in schools. And the other half of your question was, Sure. Yeah, you know, I've participated in some of those things. Uh, I know like with, uh, there's a group here in the Twin Cities, I think, Tamales Bicicletas, I believe, if I'm saying that correctly. But uh, we, we've taken kids to Camp Minosian uh, and done some environmental leadership programs with, uh, with, uh, with youth of color, uh, with that group, uh, you know, Latinx kids. Um, and so, uh, you know, th those are things. I mean, and there are groups and organizations around the country that I've plugged into that are doing stuff with kids, with youth. There's a, a Black Kids Outside in Huntsville, Alabama, with uh, takes, particularly takes uh, young black children camping because a lot of times they're the kids that are least likely in, in these summer camps, so they've created a summer camp for black kids to have that experience. So I've, you know, I've plugged myself into programs around the country in order to be able to participate in those kinds of things. So, yep. Hi, hi, Ms. Jefferson. Thanks for coming and sharing with us. Um, I was curious about any crossover or collaboration between BIPOC environmentalists and agriculturists. Agriculturalists and environmentalists. Yeah, so there's um, more movement in uh, black farmers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I haven't participated in anything like that, um, but you know, I I've been trying to uh, connect with urban farmers, uh, and actually, uh, my new book I'm that I'm working on, the people the planet needs now. I'm trying to trying to reach out and get an urban farmer in that book. Uh, and I'm having a little issue with people I've reached out to so far haven't gotten back to me, but you know I do want to make that that connection because I think it's important for people to understand that you know if you live in a you know a, in a part of a city that's you know kind of been forgotten by grocery stores, potentially you could you know grow grow stuff in your yard, get get your soil tested, of course. Uh, and and uh, and then be able to you know do community gardens and things like that. But but I haven't had any any real uh, connection. But it, but it sounds like a, a certainly a good one. But I haven't personally done anything with, with groups like that. Yeah. And we have time for one last question, sure. and you get it. Um. So this is so interesting, and I wonder if. Um, any of what you're talking about, you've been able to make a tie-in to the public health field. 
And if you've been, if that would be a great way to harness what you're seeing and what you know about the mental health benefits of um, the natural world and how we can make that as a part of public health conversation in our country. Yeah, that's a, a good question. Actually, I'm literally working on a video project with the Minnesota Department of Health right now, that very thing uh, in, in Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center, uh, where they are doing a project, Black Joy, and talking to uh, urban youth about connecting to nature. And, and uh, you know, we've taken kids to some of the state parks and, and they've participated in things and then, you know, talking about their experiences in, in those spaces. So my, my answer to your question is I'm working on some video projects with the Minnesota Department of Health around that that very thing at, at this time. Actually, Monday I'll be in the Twin Cities uh, doing that. So, <laughs> yep. Very good. And on that, we need to conclude. Thank oh, okay. you very, very much, sure. Dudley. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you next time. Thank you.